good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Matt, and uh, today we're continuing with our uh, What is Christian Worship series with a, with a week that's entitled What Happens at the End of a Service of Worship. On first glance, a uh, bit of an odd title. What happens at the end? We go home. Or maybe we drink a cup of tea and, and then go home. But there must have been a bit more to it than that when Sarah, in her mind, was creating and crafting this sermon series. And this particular week's focus must have had a bit more depth. So let's look a bit more deeply at that question together. Well, the service leader, I suppose, has unlimited options, but after the final part of a service, it is usually best to draw it to a close in some way, shape, or form. I've been in services where it's not that clear when it's the end and when it's okay to, to go home. And the freedom of that can feel lovely or it can feel a bit confusing. So here in the Anglican tradition, we tend to choose a more structured ending to our services. For example, in a Holy Communion service like this one, when the main focus is communion itself, the service is probably going to end with a song, some short prayers, and a blessing. If the service isn't communion, then the scripture reading and the sermon form the main body of the service. But the final blessing, an uplifting song of praise perhaps appear to be the norm. In a more contemporary charismatic service, uh, the call to respond uh, to the Holy Spirit in prayer and sung worship can also be the ending. And it's up to the service leader to discern when and how to end this kind of service, perhaps with a blessing or a Bible verse or an encouragement to those present. We are remarkably privileged here, aren't we, in Ashford, that we have this really wide range of service styles to choose from. And I can't emphasize enough that as followers of Jesus, there is a huge benefit to us all in remembering that no one service style is better than another. And so it's great to make the effort to go to services outside of your regular one and appreciate all that God may teach you through another expression of worship. Anyway, back to the point. Most of us have experienced the end of a service in whatever style of worship we choose to attend, and it's not really the practical aspect of that that I want to consider this morning. I want us to look a bit more reflectively and challenge ourselves a bit, if that's okay. This might feel a bit uh, off topic, but during the last few months, I've been asked countless times the question, how is the sick? That's the service our family usually attend, and I imagine an equal number of times I've asked other people, how is your service going? It's a question born out of curiosity and genuine interest. It's often asked because you care about the people, the service, the church. You long for the answer to be a positive one. So I'm not judging the question or the person who's asking it. It's a perfectly reasonable inquiry. But recently God has put on my heart to stop asking that question and slightly more awkwardly challenging those who ask it of me. The 
question I'm trying to ask more often instead is what is God doing in your service? Or if I'm feeling really blunt, what is God doing in your life? And so at the end of a service, perhaps we can ask ourselves the questions, how have I encountered God in this service? What is God doing in my life? What is God saying to me? And if we chat to people after the service, perhaps we should consider sometimes asking them the same question or maybe in your house groups during the week. And here, finally, you might be thinking, I'm getting to what I really want to talk about. Because assuming we have encountered God in some way each week, it begs the question, what are we going to do about it? Or my favorite question of all, what next? Bethany is going to come and read from today's passage. So let's see what God could be teaching us today on what next. Today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, um, verses 1 to 14, and that's page 1173 in your Bibles. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession, to the praise of his glory. Thanks, Bethany. Uh, so if you didn't know, I'm a, I'm a history teacher and I've been... I've been teaching some A-level students this term 
about the different models and strategies of the main civil rights organizations in America during the 1960s. Uh, one you might have heard of, that the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, or the SCLC, they had an obvious founder and leader, an iconic figurehead of their movement, at the top of a very obvious hierarchy, Martin Luther King. He inspired followers to practice nonviolent resistance through his own teaching, example, and courage. The other group, though, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNIC, as they were called, had a much more flat organizational structure. They had a collection of leaders and a strategy of organic growth through mass participation and commitment. Many of these students were inspired by King and learned how to be nonviolent by his words in books like Strength to Love or at college uh, at uh, Nashville. But they were then encouraged to practice what they had learned during the sit-ins and freedom rides and voter registration campaigns. They were not supposed to just read or listen and learn. They were compelled to respond, to do something about it. SCLC and SNCC had different strategies because they had different answers to the question, what next? SCLC had put all their faith into one individual, admittedly a remarkable one. But the younger students asked the question, what next? What happens if he dies? SNCC wanted a movement that would carry on without one charismatic leader. SNCC wanted everyone to take a lead, to respond, to participate in some way. I could go on for hours. But these dual strategies had created success in the movement in the early to mid-60s. You had a central leader and you had a mass movement, meeting, talking, praying, marching together. Why am I telling you this? Well, because it seems to me that God has a plan that's a combination of both these groups and their strategies. God has a purpose, and according to God's eternal loving plan, he directs, carries out, and sustains our salvation. As the passage describes, God's plan is also centered around the king, a remarkable, eloquent, inspirational, and countercultural figure. Christ is exalted. He is the head of the organization, the church, the creator and sustainer of all things. But alongside this, God's plan survives the death of this king. In fact, the plan is based on the sacrifice of the leader of the movement so that everyone else can carry on the fight, saved by grace and equipped with all the teaching and authority he provides through his Holy Spirit. As verse 13 tells us, we are included in Christ. We must use our God-given abilities to carry on his purpose, to fulfill our role in the living church. We 
are critical to the overall plan, which means at the end of a service, we do well to ask ourselves the question, what next? In other words, how will I go forward into life at the end of a service? Now, this might seem a bit basic, but if we are disciples of Christ, followers of Jesus, then a good place to start is to look at Jesus' behavior and attitude to guide us. How do the principles he taught and modeled apply to us? I can't really suggest what you do next. I've not got a clear formula for you to follow. Our life stages and commitments all look very different. But if you do call yourself a Christian today, think about what Jesus might do next at the end of this service. I think maybe you'd still get one of those emails, WWJD. You need to add a new letter, WWJDN. What would Jesus do next? Perhaps we could consider this question by splitting it into two parts. What would Jesus do next inside the church? And what would he do next on the outside at the end of a service? And here, perhaps, you might need to use your imagination a little. So uh, if, you, if you want to, it might help just to close your eyes and imagine right now. Imagine what Jesus would do at the end of this service in this choose to talk to and how would he talk to them would he be going to prayer ministry or praying for others or both might he be serving the tea or filling the rotors that have spaces would he be with the children in the kids' group, taking registers as parents collect them? Or might he be sitting very quietly, just sitting a little longer on his own in God's presence? You can open your eyes again now if you're able to. Uh, you might stay on the seat, I don't know. Um, but hold on to any ideas which might have come into your mind. God speak to us in the silence. What about when Jesus leaves the building? What might he do then? Of course, it's going to vary enormously. But what I am sure about is that he would make intentional choices through the week that kept him both living in the love of God and showing that love to others. I don't think he kind of, he sort of drifts from Sunday to Sunday, giving little thought of his heavenly father. When we look at Jesus' life, we see him again showing the way with spiritual disciplines that we can engage in, reading his word, prayer, solitude, contemplation, fasting, worship, rest. And from that space of rest and security in his heavenly father, Jesus then goes on to do all sorts of things. He tends parties teaches, walks, hangs out with friends, heals the sick, 
goes fishing. I want to add take alls to the list. I can't find it in the Bible. I, c- I could go on, but I mean, ultimately, he shares God's love with those around him. We, we recently had a discussion in our, in our house group about some of us had been feeling a bit stuck in our spiritual journey. And we, we agreed to commit to something, to some sort of response, some act of following Jesus more closely in the week ahead, some answer to the question, what's next? We all had completely different ideas about what we might do. It was a really good discussion, and then we then held each other accountable to to what we had promised to do the following week. But I do want to make it really clear that there will be times and seasons in our lives when things are just really tough, and getting through each day is a challenge, when maybe we can't face attending church and thinking about following Jesus more closely does feel like an impossibility. And if that's you, that this is not a guilt trip. We all have those phases. It's a time when the holy spiritual discipline of intentional rest and some of those practices can be a huge gift to us. We're going to reap the benefits of intentional spiritual practices that we usually engage in. And you can receive the blessing of comfort and support from other followers of Christ. So as we move towards communion and the end of the service today, I'll maybe invite you again to close your eyes and consider what you might do in response. What is your answer to the question, what next? What will you do at the end of the service? Perhaps you want to imitate what you imagine Jesus doing in fellowship. It might be that you're not yet following Jesus, but you're interested in what that means, starting a journey, and you'd like to find out more. For others, you might like to enter a new phase of discipleship, of learning and belonging in this community. Your next step might be to decide to actively contribute to the church, joining a team, leading a ministry, doing God's service. Some for whom it's a time to face the journey inwards, to focus more on personal growth and process some of our wounds, our disappointments. And for those of you that have gone through all these very necessary stages of the Christian life and are now more mature in faith, well, please don't keep that wisdom to yourself. If you do have a desire to mentor, other younger Christians, then I'm not shy in stealing one. I've got Nina. I'm keen to learn. Whatever it is that you want to do next at the end of this service to follow Jesus, my hope and prayer is that we would know, as the reading reminded us, the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. And we would respond with more and better as our team are going home.